Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. We know, Courtney, it looks like the Western movie, or as my godfather used to call them, shoot 'em ups are back in a big way. Netflix is riding high on its latest motion picture, The Harder They Fall. Now, what makes this movie interesting is that the cowboys are Black, and all of the main characters were actual real-life people who lived in the Old West. Now, many of our listeners and folks who watch the movie might find it incredulous and actually pure fiction that there were Black cowboys. But some historians estimate that as many as one-fourth of the cowboys in the late 1800s were Black. But because of that old enemy systemic racism, many of them have been erased from history. And then, Carol, the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City um, have placed those numbers higher, and they vary considerably depending upon location. In the Rio Grande, Rio Grande Valley, most cowboys were Mexican, while those along the Gulf Coast were predominantly Black. In states like Oklahoma and the Dakotas, many more cowboys were Native American. But according to historians, cowboy traditions originated in Africa, where cattle herders would rope cattle on the foot in the likes of the Maasai people, and they would drive them towards better grazing lands. After the Muslims' cavalry conquest in Spain in the 8th century, these traditions made their way to Europe and eventually moved to North America in the early 16th century during the colonization of Mexico. Well, you know, Courtney, that's interesting history, and it helps explain what and how the American West evolved as cattle country with a Black presence. Now, white Americans seeking cheap land and sometimes even evading debt in the United States began moving to the Spanish and later Mexican territory of Texas during the first half of the 19th century. Now, though the Mexican government actually opposed slavery, those Americans brought slaves with them as they settled the frontier and established cotton farms and cattle ranches. And so by 1860, over 30% or 182,566 enslaved people lived in Texas. So as a new slave state, Texas joined the Confederacy and its landowners fought in the Civil War. So while these Texas ranchers were out fighting the war, they actually depended on their enslaved people to maintain their land and cattle herds. Now, in doing so, these folks developed the skills of cattle tending, such as breaking horses, pulling calves out of the mud, and releasing uh, the old longhorns that were caught in brush. These skills ultimately made them more valuable to the Texas cattle industry in the post-Civil War era. And right after the Civil War, being a cowboy was one of the few jobs open to men of color 
who wanted to not serve as elevator operators or delivery boys or other similar occupation, explains William Lauren Katz, who's a scholar of African-American history and the author of 40 books on this very topic, including the Black West that we talked about in another episode. Now, freed Blacks who were skilled in herding cattle found themselves in even greater demand when ranchers began selling their livestock in northern states where beef was nearly 10 times more valuable than it was in Texas, because beef in Texas was plentiful, so it really wasn't that valuable, but they could sell it up north at a premium. Now, since there weren't a lot of railroads in the state of Texas, that meant enormous herds of cattle needed to be physically moved to shipping points in Kansas, Colorado, and Missouri. So this meant cowboys had to round up herds on horseback on really harsh, unforgiving trails in bad environment, and even attacks from Native Americans who were defending their lands. Now, on top of all that hardship, Black cowboys faced discrimination in the towns they had to pass through. They were barred from eating at certain restaurants or staying in certain hotels. Sounds familiar, right? But within their own crews, that is within the, the cowboy circle that they operated in, they actually found respect and a level of equality that really was unknown to other African-Americans during that era. Now, one of the few representations of Black cowboys in mainstream entertainment was the fictional Josh Dietz um, from in the Texas novelist Larry McCurdy's book, Lonesome Dove, and that was turned into a 1989 television miniseries, which I remember based on that novel. And it starred actor Danny Glover as Dietz, an ex-slave turned cowboy who served as a scout on a Texas to Montana cattle drive. Dietz was inspired by real life Bose Ickard, a African-American cowboy who worked on the, on the Charles Goodnight and Oliver Loving cattle drives in the late 19th century. Well, now that we've given a little bit of history on Black people on the frontier, let's take a look at the characters from the movie, The Harder They Fall. Now, much of the daring do in the movie was fictionalized, but the real life stories of the people who were depicted were just as exciting and dramatic as how they were portrayed in the movie. Well, first up, we have Bass Reeves. And if you listen to our podcast, you are familiar with Marshall Reeves, who was played by Delroy Lint in the movie. And like I said, he's no stranger to our podcast, a prolific Black lawman of the West. You could get his whole uh, backstory on our previous podcast from last week. But he was born a slave in 1883. But by 1875, he was the first Black U.S. Marshal west of the Mississippi, standing over six feet tall astride his large white horse, wearing his signature black hat, Bass struck an imposing figure, but it was his knowledge of the language, terrain, and the relationships that he made with Native American tribes and inhabitants in the territory that gave him almost supernatural abilities. Despite not learning how to read until later in his adult life, he would memorize the warrants for criminals that he was on the hunt for, and he always got his man or even woman. 
Now, Bass Reeves died in 1910 of Bright's disease, but his arrest record of 3,000 dwarfs the records of better known white Wild West lawmen such as Bat Masterson, Wyatt Earp, and Wild Bill Hickok. Well, Courtney, I remember watching TV shows and movies about Bat Masterson, Wyatt Earp, and even Wild Bill Hickok, but not a peep about Bass Reeves. And based on what you've told us, he sure deserves a movie or a television show all his own. Now, what about one of the women in that movie, The Harder They Fall, Trudy Smith? Okay, treacherous Trudy Smith, played amazingly by Regina King, was one of the hardest characters historically to pin down, which was both a gift and a curse to the actress, director, uh, and director, uh, Regina King. But what we do know of the real treacherous Trudy Smith is that she was a notorious pickpocket and thief who operated an elaborate scheme with her partner, Dolly Mickey, during the 19th century in what was known as San Francisco's Barbary Coast section of town. Known for its lawlessness and outlaw population, treacherous Trudy fit right in. As of right now, only one picture exists of Trudy, and it is of her mugshot in a local newspaper. (laughs) Well, Trudy probably kept a low profile because of her outlaw ways. So I'm not surprised we only have a mugshot of her. Besides, female outlaws didn't get much respect back in those days. Well, now what can you tell us about another character in the movie, Bill Pickett? Well, Bill Pickett, played by Edie Gaffey, is known as the father of bull riding. Bill Pickett invented a competitive, invented competitive steer wrestling or bulldogging and performed it in rodeos throughout North America and Europe. Now, born William Pickett in 1870, he began work as a ranch hand in lieu of attending the sixth grade. I'd pick that too, probably. I think so too. I think so too. (laughs) Sixth grade was pretty boring. Now, when he was 18, he and his brothers established the Pickett Brother Bronco Busters and Rough Riders Association. Say that fast two times. That's the tongue twister of the day. The Pickett Brothers Bronco Busters and Rough Riders Association, a horse breaking and cowboy service in Texas. Now, bulldogging is extremely dangerous. It involves subduing a steer by grabbing its horns and biting its nose or bottom lip. Oh, boy. And it changed the face of the rodeo and allowed Pickett to travel across the U.S., Canada, Mexico, South America, and England as a performer. The world champion rodeo bulldogger died in 1932 in April after being kicked in the head by his own horse. But his legacy continues with a traveling rodeo that bears his name, the Bill Pickett Invitational Rodeo. A much simpler name than that one you gave us (laughs) earlier. (laughs) Now, once again, I had no idea that one of the quintessential events at rodeos was popularized by a Black man. Now, while Bill Pickett's rodeo feats sound heroic, the harder they fall depicted a villainous person named Rufus Buck. Now, I have to admit, I'd never heard of this guy until... Uh, I saw the movie, but he's definitely not someone I'd want to meet in a dark alley. 
Oh, no. If you were one of the people who had the unfortunate luck of meeting Rufus Buck in a dark alley, you might not live to tell the tale. Now, Rufus Buck didn't make it past 18 years old. Now, Buck was born in the 1870s, the son of a Black mother and a Creek Indian father. Now, in the 1890s, Buck created a gang with other Black and Creek Indian teens and proceeded a rampage through Arkansas and Oklahoma, robbing stores, killing a U.S. deputy marshal, and allegedly violently beating and raping victims. Wow, now, all at the age of 18? Ooh. All at the age of, he was a rebel without a cause. Mm. Now, historians say that Buck's terrorizing was not without purpose. So I take that back. He might have been a rebel with a cause. He strove to incite a Native American uprising that would wrestle Arkansas and Oklahoma back from the white settlers who kept encroaching upon Indian territory in overwhelming numbers. Now, his dream was impossible. And he used the same violence that he saw white settlers use all around him. And that was, you know, something that I learned uh, by reading the, an article by novelist Leonce Gate, who turned Buck's story into the novel um, from 2011, I Dreamt I Was in Heaven, The Rampage of, Ruf of the Rufus Buck Gang. And I'm listening to that on Audible, so I recommend it. it is a, it's a rough read, but it's an exciting read. In 1896, U.S. deputy marshals and police tracked the gang down outside of Oak Mogi, Oklahoma, engaging in a day-long gunfight that ended with the gang's surrender. Now, there is no indication that Bass Reeves was a part of that hunt. Um, in the movie, it shows that Bass Reeves has an intimate relationship or, or knows all the characters. Um, he possibly could be because of the time frame, but we do not know that for sure. But unluckily for Buck's gang, their cases fell under the purview of a hanging judge by the name of Judge Parker. And he was known for ruthlessly sentencing criminals to death at Fort Smith. Now, while many men had been hanged there for over previous decades, gang members uh, Momoa July and Samson were the first one to be hanged for rape. The Supreme Court upheld the verdict and the rest of the gang were all, in all executed on the same day, including Rufus Buck. Wow. One fell swoop. Whew. Now, the filmmakers actually took a lot of liberties with the Rufus Buck character because obviously he's much older in the movie, certainly not 18. But even his real life escapades are stuff that movies are made of. Now, there was another sinister character in the movie named Cherokee Bill. He was almost more ominous than Rufus Buck. Yes, playing the strong, dark, scary, and silent type, Cherokee Bill was brought to the screen by Lakeith Stansfield. Now, the real Cherokee Bill was born Crawford's Goldsby in 1876, and he was an infamous outlaw who rode with the Cook Gang. Now, the Cook Gang consisted of Blacks, Sioux Indians, Mexicans, and Cherokee Indians, as well as white cowboys as well. And Cherokee Bill was light enough so that he could pass for white if, you know, the need arose. Okay, so that was a, a very diverse gang. They had, a, had all the groups covered. 
Now, Goldsby, or Cherokee Bill, attended Native American schools in Indian Territory, better known as Oklahoma, from age seven um, all the way up to 13 to where he fell into with a fell in with a bad crowd and started committing crimes like stealing horses to rob trains, bank robberies, and he has said to have killed between seven and 13 people before he was apprehended and convicted of murder. Now, Cherokee Bill unsuccessfully tried to escape from jail and ended up killing a guard on the way out, and that earned him a second murder conviction. Now, he was hanged in 1896 at the age of 20, and when he was asked if he had any last words, Cherokee Bill said, I came here to die, not to make a speech. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what a way to go. That actually sounds like a line that would have been written from an old Western movie. But here it is right out of the mouth of a real person. Cherokee Bill. Oh, my, my, my. Now, Nat Love, the leader of the gang, the head of the movie played by Jonathan Majors, um, and a lot of us call him Nat and I just did, but it's actually Nate. It's Nate Love. He was born into slavery in June 1854 in Tennessee. He was a skilled cowboy and would earn the nickname Deadwood Dick after winning a shooting contest in Deadwood, South Dakota. Now, he was also an expert at roping and herding and branding cattle and horses. Now, Love became a free man at the end of the Civil War after winning a horse in a raffle. He set off on his own at 15 and settled in Kansas. Now, he found work as a cowboy on the cattle trails and a Pullman porter on the railroads. He published his memoir, The Life and Times of Nate Love, in 1907, perhaps the only full-length autobiography written by a Black cowboy. And Love died in 1921. Well, I'll tell you, Courtney, you really opened my eyes because I never knew that Deadwood Dick was black. I just thought he was a white guy. And what else is fascinating is that he, um, you know, Love wrote his own memoir, something you wouldn't expect of a hardened cowboy man. But he obviously had education and polish since he also became a Pullman porter, which was a job that required a level of style and grace. So he was quite a guy. Now, one of the characters that really got my attention was Cuffy, who came off as quite a surprise in the movie. That's right. Cuffy, played by Danielle Detweiler, is based on Cathay Williams. She was born to an enslaved mother and a free father in Independence, Missouri in 1844. Now, during her adolescence, she worked as a house slave on the Johnson Plantation on the outskirts of Jefferson City, Missouri. Now, in 1861, despite the prohibition against women serving in the military, Williams enlisted in the U.S. regular army under the false name William Cathay. Oh, now, <laughs> okay. So she just kind of flipped that around. Mm-hmm. And on November 15th, 1866, she enlisted for a three-year engagement, passing herself off and continued as William. Now, shortly after her enlistment, she contracted smallpox and was hospitalized. Now, Williams rejoined her unit in New Mexico, but she was honorably discharged by her commanding officer, Captain Charles E. Clark, on October 4th, 1868. 
Now, though her disability discharge meant the end of her tenure with the Army, her adventure continued. She signed up with an emerging all-Black regiment that would eventually become the legendary Buffalo Soldiers. I'll tell you, she is amazing. Who would have thought a woman was a member of the famed Buffalo Soldiers. And, you know, when I watched the movie, I enjoyed the character in that movie, but I'm even more impressed knowing about these real life exploits. Now, one other person that was interesting in the movie was Jim Beckworth. What can you tell us about him? Well, Jim Beckworth was played by R.J. Seiler and James Jim Beckworth was born into slavery in Virginia on in April of 1798. Now he was the son of a white man and an enslaved woman. Now Beckworth was awarded his freedom by his father in 1810. Known widely as a mountain man, Beckworth embarked on a fur trading expedition in 1823 and an expedition, expedition to the Rocky Mountains the following year. He took several Native American wives and lived among the Crow Indians for six years, impressing them with his athletic prowess. Now, in 1848, in the midst of the California gold rush, Beckworth charted a course through the Sierras en route to California, where he befriended journalist Thomas D. Bonner. And Bonner chronicled Beckworth's memories about his life in a book called The Life and Adventures of James Beckworth, Mountaineer, Scout, Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians, which was published in 1856. Well, once again, Courtney, a life worth portraying in a movie. It sounds like Beckworth's adventures rivaled those of the famous Daniel Boone. Now, of all these men and women, they all led amazing lives, Courtney. But I think you are about to tell us a story about Stagecoach Mary that would top them all. In fact, it's not one story, it's many stories. That's true. And I have been waiting to share my historical favorite with our podcast listeners for, I think, since I was 11 years old, since before podcasts existed. No, <laughs> she's been in waiting in the wing. She's been waiting in the wing. She's been waiting in the wing. So if you've already seen the movie, The Heart of They Fall, um, the one character, like I said, I anticipated seeing this woman on screen my entire life. But the actress who played her came with some controversy. Um, the person who they chose to play uh, Stagecoach Mary was Zazie Beats, who I enjoy her acting. But Stagecoach Mary in real life was six feet tall, dark brown skin, and 200 pounds. So up against the five foot three, around 120 pounds biracial Zazie Beats, they don't look anything alike. Hmm. Okay, now, so the uh, so this was truly fictionalized. This was truly fictionalized. And as a plus size queen myself and a beautiful dark skinned woman, if I must say so, I was looking to see my hero on screen. But I live in the real world. So I'm aware that colorism and size discrimination exist in Hollywood, especially if she was going to be the love interest played against Jonathan Major. So I understand it. It hurts, but I understand it. But I'm excited today to share the real story of stagecoach Mary Fields. I can't wait. Let's hear all about it. 
Now, Fields was born into slavery in Hickman County, Tennessee, around 1832. Now, by the time she was 18, the Civil War had ended and she was emancipated. So she found work as a chambermaid on board of the Robert E. Lee, which was a Mississippi riverboat. And that's where she met Judge Edmund Dune and ultimately worked as his house servant and cared for he and his wife's children until his wife died. Now, after his wife died, he sent Mary and his late wife's five children to live with his sister, who was a mother superior, and her name was Mother Mary Amadeus in Toledo, Ohio, where she love was. That, the, I love that name. Mother I know, isn't Mary, it? Yeah. Amadeus. I mean, you can't make this up. Mother Mary, Mary Amadeus. Amadeus. And she was the mother superior of an Ursuline convent. Now, the two women became best friends, um, and some people say that they have a, had a connection um, through slavery. I don't know that for sure, but in that time in Ohio, they became best friends. So Mary decided to stay with her friend, and it was she stayed until it was time for Mother Mary Amadeus um, to move on. So in 1884, Mother Mary Amadeus was sent to the Montana Territory to establish a school for Native American girls in at the St. Peter's Mission west of Cascade, Montana. Now, soon Mary got very disturbing news about her friend, Mary Amadeus. She was sick with pneumonia and the nuns thought that she was going to die. So you know what Mary did? She got up, she got the first coach and she headed out to nurse her friend back to health. That's what friends are for. Now, once Mother Superior was healthy and on her feet, Mary just took a job working for the Ursuline nuns at the St. Peter's Mission in Cascade. Now she made $9 a week doing menial jobs like chopping wood, digging holes, and building a schoolhouse and a chapel. And she did not have a lot of tools and she did not have a lot of know-how, but she figured it out. Now, when she wasn't tending the chickens or building a schoolhouse, she was maintaining the cover, uh, the the convent's garden. And she was very meticulous about the garden. She had a foul mouth and she could not stand for people to mess up her yard work. One nun famously remarked, may God help anyone who walks on the lawn after Mary cuts it. <laughs> now the 52 year old was a you know a sight to see for the native american students and the locals they didn't know what to make of her since they a lot of them had never seen an african-american in montana before and mary had a no-nonsense attitude and she did not back down from anyone white people included which earned her the nickname White Crow from the Native American population, meaning that she acted with the authority and free freedom of a white man, but she was black like a crow. So it was very, it was very an, an observant choice. Now, despite the awe and respect that she earned from the Native population, Mary still had a job to do. So when she wasn't maintaining the school grounds, she made the weekly 120-mile supply run to Helena, Montana to pick up food, medical supplies, and other things that the convent would need. Wow, and she did all that by herself? Mary, Mary is oh. a superwoman. 
And it goes on. Now, one of the famous tales of Stagecoach Mary came one evening when she was charging through the countryside on one of her delivery runs with food, medicine, and things like that for the nuns and the kids. And out of nowhere, a pack of wolves charged and attacked her horses. It scared the horses, bit into them, and it flipped the entire cart over. Mm. Now, Mary jumped out. She used the overturned cart as cover to keep her from being mauled from the wolves. And then all she had for light was a small little lamp. But she fought back several of the beasts all night long, shooting them with a shotgun at close range and then switching to her revolver when she ran out of buckshot in the shotgun. Hey, she was resourceful. Now, the next morning, she muscled the cart back upright, got everything back in place and tracked down some of the horses and made the trip all the way back to the convent intact, except for a keg of molasses that had cracked during the battle. Now, the bishop of the convent made her pay for the molasses out of her own pocket. After this harrowing event, she saves everything (laughs) and uh, molasses becomes the big deal. My goodness. Okay. Exactly. Now, when Mary wasn't fighting off wolves or having to deal with the penny pinching bishop at the convent, you could find her in the bar, in the saloons of Cascade, drinking men under the table. Think if you've seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, that scene where Indiana Jones's girlfriend is drinking guys under the table up in the Asian mountains. Mary was doing that in Cascade, Montana. She also loved cigars, and the cigars were so potent that any gunslinger or man could barely smoke them. They said they were way too strong. (laughs) But not too strong for Not too strong for Mary. Now, at the time, it was law that if you were not a prostitute, you were not allowed to drink in saloons. But Mary was so popular with the mayor of the town, she received special permission to be served at any bar in the city at any time she wanted for the rest of her life. Okay, she's got drinking, drinking privileges. I like this woman. Now, despite that special dispensation and love from the mayor, there were some people that had to learn the hard way not to mess with Mary Fields. Now, one day when she was minding her business, drinking and having a good time, a white patron of the bar called her the N-word mixed with the word that means female dog. This is not going to end well. And he said it, he kind of said it in a punk way because he said it outside of the saloon doors, but within earshot of Mary. Mm. now legend has it that for a second she stopped she finished her drink she got up picked up a big rock in the middle of the street and clubbed the man in the skull with it repeatedly until the other cowboys had to pull her off whoa mary mary (laughs) now the great falls examiner newspaper once cited this hard drinking quick-tempered woman as someone who had broken more noses than any other person in the whole state of Montana. And no one ever debated that claim. Who would? Because you might get clobbered. (laughs) Now, you might imagine that, you know, being a hard drinking, foul mouth convent employee could not last that long. I mean, she's swearing, she's yelling, she's drinking, but it wasn't that. It was her unquenchable thirst for vengeance that eventually got Mary in trouble. Now, one day, the convent handyman had gotten very upset when he found out that Mary had made more than him. And he went on talking about it all day. 
Now, when Mary got wind of what was going on, she cracked her knuckles, rolled up her sleeves of her work blouse and pulled out her 38 Smith and Wesson that she kept in her apron at all times. Everybody, everybody carries a Smith and Wesson in her apron. Okay. And she began storming around the nunnery looking for this man. You know, if you have something to say to me, say it to my face. Now she challenged him to a duel and the man said no, but there was still an ensuing gun battle and she literally popped a cap in his butt. She shot him in the butt. Mary, Mary. That's all I can say is Mary, Mary. And she emerged unscathed. Now I think that she was well within her rights and it is the wild west, but that was the last straw of the bishop, the nuns, and Mary, even Mary Amadeus could not save her friend. They were done. So Mary at 60 years old is without a job. But when we come back, I will let you know what Mary did in her second act of life as a Wild West icon and her ties to an American actor who was lucky enough to have her as a babysitter okay babysitter very her skills run the gamut um now these escapades that you've described are are enough to fill any movie so again i'm amazed that stagecoach mary's uh story hasn't made it to the silver screen and based on what we've heard about her so far i bet she didn't have any trouble out of a kid any kid that she babysat so let's take a break then come back to hear more about this whirlwind of the wild west want to learn more about systemic racism or maybe you want to leave us a comment rate our show subscribe get lots of swag or reach out to us on social media well you can go to our website www.podpage.com why are they so angry and connect with courtney and me You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. Okay, we're back. And Stagecoach Mary has kicked up so much dust. She's gotten kicked out of her last job. So what did she do next, Courtney? Well, like I said, when we left off, Mary was 60 and jobless due to a work-related shootout at the convent. Now, she tried opening two restaurants in Cascade, but they both failed. Firstly, because she gave out way too many free meals to needy people, and also because Mary was not the best cook. So in 1895, she said, hey, I'm going to apply for a job with the United States Postal Services delivering mail throughout the Montana Territory. Now, for the job interview, she and a dozen hardened Old West Cowboys, half her age, remember, she's 60 years old now, were asked to hitch a team of six horses to a stagecoach as quickly as possible. Now, the 60-year-old Mary Fields blew them all away. She hitched the horses up so fast that she had time to run to the saloon, take some shots, come back, (laughs) smoke a cigar, and laugh at the other young interviewees who were still struggling to hitch up the horses. (laughs) Once again, Mary, Mary, this woman, she is incredible. Now I can see why she is your heroine, but, but do tell there's more, there's more. 
And with that, of course, with that amazing interview, she got the job and became the second woman and the first Black person of any gender to work for the United States Post Office. Mm. Now, being a postal employee does not, may not trigger images of being a gunslinger back in the old days or anything like that. But in the Old West, delivering the mail was very dangerous. And for the next 60, I'm sorry, for the next six years, uh, Mary, who by that time was 66, she started when she was 60, she rode her stagecoach packed with money, gold, expensive parcels, and letters throughout the Montana territories. She delivered mail anywhere, anytime, through any terrain, at, and in any weather, and in all manner of danger. She braved blizzards, heat waves, driving rain, screaming wind, and Mary never missed a day of work, and she never failed to deliver a single letter. She was never late once. If the snow got too high, she would keep her horses where they were, strap on her snowshoes, and walk the rest of the way with the mailbag thrown over her shoulder. Mm, talk about no rain, no sleep. No. She is the definition of no rain, no sleep. No, that is her. Now, if anyone got too close, because remember, this was a dangerous job, she carried her rusty 10-gauge shotgun. And for the record, a 10-gauge shotgun is bigger than a 12-gauge. Hmm. And according to her own personal experience, it was capable of cutting a man clean in half at close range. Wow, Mary. And obviously, <laughs> she didn't have any um, compunction about using one. At all. And this was the job that got her the nickname Stagecoach Mary. Now at 71, Mary finally retired from her postal job and moved into the town finally. And she was loved by the townspeople and babysat their children. One of those people that she babysat was Gary Cooper. Oh my goodness. <laughs> she also loved, uh, she also had a laundry service. And in 1910, when the Cascade Hotel was sold, the owner stipulated that Mary Fields would continue to have free meals um, for the rest of her life. Mm, wow. In 1912, when her home and laundry service burned down, the townspeople of Cascade built her a new home. And when, remember that law about only prostitutes being in the saloons? Well, another law was passed again for women, not even prostitutes to be allowed. And it, that exemption still held up. The new mayor still held up that Mary could go and drink whenever she wanted to. The schools even closed down to celebrate her birthday. Now, Mary is a girl after my own heart because she would had she had two birthdays. One she would celebrate in March, which makes her an Aries like me. And another she would celebrate in October. So I'm going to assume that was her half birthday. Mm -hmm. But the schools would close down each year. Mary <laughs> was an avid baseball fan and flower gardener and would give flower bouquets to each of the players who hit the home, who hit home runs. And people often would hear her argue with the umpires who she felt gave bad calls. Ooh, I wouldn't argue with her. <laughs> at all. Now, in 1914, she died at the age of 82. And many pallbearers and all the townspeople gathered to bury her in a small cemetery along the road of her, pro of her postal route between Cascade and St. Peter's Mission on the road. And 
when Gary Cooper was actually asked to write a story about Stagecoach Mary for Ebony Magazine, um, he said this, even though she was born a slave, she was the freest soul to ever draw breath or 38. Well, he encapsulated that quite well, Gary Cooper. My goodness, I I still can't believe this heroic and colorful woman hasn't been immortalized in a motion picture. And the movie, The Harder They Fall, didn't come close to doing her justice. And spoiler alert, if stagecoach Mary had been portrayed in the movie as she really was, that old villain, Rufus Buck, would have been wiped out in the first scene the two of them had together. Oh, so, I agree. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it would have been all over for Rufus and anybody else that was a bad guy. So, so, my dear niece, I know you are also not only an aficionado of uh, Mary Field, stagecoach Mary, and uh, all of her exploits, but I also know that you like Westerns and particularly Black Westerns that involve cowboys and so on. Um, What recommendations do you have for our listeners? Well, Aunt Carol, I do have many. Now, the first one I'll start out with is Hell on the Border, directed by Wes Miller from 2019. And it's a fictionalized story of Bass Reeves in his first years as a marshal. And it also has the gentleman uh, who played in Hellboy, but I love that movie. 1993 was the first Black Western I had ever seen with a full Black cast. That's Posse, starring Mario Van Peebles. Uh, There's Django Unchained from 2012, directed by Quentin Tarantino, starring Jamie Foxx, Kerry Washington, and Samuel L. Jackson. It's just one of, it's in my top 10 favorite movies. There's Lola Colt, also known as The Black Tigress, from 1967, directed by Cereal Marcellini, starring Lola Falana. There's Black Rodeo from 1972, directed by Jeff Canoe. Now, it's a documentary, but it interviews Muhammad Ali, Ray Charles, um, Glenn Turman, and several other Black people from the 70s who were a part of the Black Power Movement, as well as knowing about Black cowboys, and they reminisce about the Black Rodeo. There's Buck and the Preacher from 1972, directed by and starring Sidney Portier. There's They Die by Dawn from 2013, directed by Gemma Samuels, starring Erica Badu as Stagecoach Mary. There's Thomasina and Bushrod, directed by Gordon Parks Jr., starring Vonetta McGee, Glenn Turman, and Juanita Moore. There's Take a Hard Ride by Antonio Marghetti from 1975 with Jim Brown, Jim Brown, Lee Van Cleef, and Fred Williamson. Sergeant Rutledge, by, uh, directed by John Ford from 1960, starring Woody Strode, Jeffrey Hunter, and Billy Burke. A Hundred Rifles, directed by Tom Greaves from 1969, starring Raquel Welch, Jim Brown, and Burt Reynolds. Buffalo Soldiers, directed by Charles Hayde from 1997, starring Danny Glover and Clifton Powell. 
There is Joshua, the Black Rider, directed by L.G. Spangler, starring Fred Williamson. And Fred Williamson has a ton of Black exploitation cowboy films. I just can't repeat their names because they've got the N-word in most of them. Oh, my. <laughs> well, no, we don't We don't use that word. On We're not going to use that word, but <laughs> Joshua, the Black Rider, I really, really like. And the oldest film on this list the Two Gun Man from Harlem from 1938, starring, uh, directed by Richard Kahn, starring Herb Jeffries. My goodness, that is quite a list, Courtney, and I appreciate that. Um, one thing I want to add for our listeners is don't forget the director that we did a um, podcast about, Oscar Micheaux, because he uh, produced and wrote and directed a number of Black cowboy movies as well. They're difficult to find, but they're, they're out there. But Courtney, your list is very inclusive. Thank you for that. Uh, but here's something we need to remember. Black cowboys aren't just from the past and in the movies. There are modern day black cowboys who are making their mark. For example, Brianna Noble uh, founded a youth riding organization named Mulatto Meadows, which provides horseback riding lessons for young people of color. She's also the spark that galvanized hundreds of other black cowboys and cowgirls around the country to join in the protest over the death of George Floyd and against police violence and racism. Now, she first appeared among protesters in Oakland, California at the end of uh, May of 2020, and she was riding her horse, Dapper Dan, with a Black Lives Matter sign draped on the horse's right side. Now, because of that, a few days after that her ride went viral, at least 30 Black cowboys rode during a demonstration in Houston and they wore t-shirts with George Floyd's face on them. And most of those riders belong to the Nonstop Riders, an urban trail riding club in Houston's third ward, right smack dab in the middle of the city, cowboys. And in Carol, there's another group in Compton, California, known as the Compton Cowboys, who led a peaceful George Floyd protest through the streets, along with the mayor, Aja Brown. Hundreds of people marched alongside the cowboys as they rode with their fists in the air, yelling, no justice, no peace. The Compton Cowboys motto is the streets raised us and horses saved us. The cowboys say riding horses also provides healing from trauma, anxiety, depression, and other lingering effects from some of the violence they've experienced. And you know, Courtney, the Compton Cowboys are far from the exception. Black cowboys and cowgirls exist in other major cities across the country. In Baltimore and Philadelphia, Black horse riding communities are a staple in city folklore and identity. And the Fletcher Street Ride Urban Riding Club in Philadelphia is a century old group that has been the subject of several documentaries. And Atlanta is also home to black urban horse riding communities as well. And speaking of the, the Philadelphia riding group, there is another movie recommendation, Concrete Cowboys, which is on Netflix, and it is starring Idris Elba as well. So check that out. But Black Cowboys also made their way back into popular culture with the explosion of Little Nas X's song, Old Town Road, in 2018. And they have also been helped by Texas-born artists like Meg Thee Stallion, Solange Knowles, and her older sister, Beyonce Knowles-Carl. 
Carter, who promote cowboy and cowboy culture in their music, music and visual arts. But this culture is nothing new, especially in the great state of Texas, which isn't so great right now, but the cowboy history is great. Groups like the Fort Worth Trail Riders Association not only throw a mean party, which I've been to, they have been holding down that tradition for years. Yes, they have. But let's not forget the rodeo tradition that Bill Pickett upheld so heroically. Uh, 76-year-old Cleo Hearn has been a professional cowboy since 1959. And in 1970, he became the first African-American cowboy to win a calf roping event at a major rodeo. He was also the first African-American to attend college on a rodeo scholarship. Now he's played a cowboy in commercials for Ford, Pepsi-Cola, and Levi's and was one of the first African-Americans to portray the iconic Marlboro Man. Now, some people may not remember that because, you know, cigarette commercials haven't been on TV in a very, very long time. But uh, Marlboro Man was uh, a cowboy who was seen out on the range smoking a cigarette, looking rugged and rough. And uh, he was the first Black man to portray that character in a commercial. But being a Black cowboy wasn't always easy. He recalled that he had been barred from entering a rodeo in his hometown of Seminole, Oklahoma, when he was 16 years old because of his race. But to continue the rodeo tradition, in 1971, the year I graduated from high school, so that's a long time ago, Hearn began producing radios for African-American cowboys. Today, his Cowboys of Color Rodeo recruits cowboys and cowgirls from diverse racial backgrounds. And the touring rodeo features over 200 athletes who compete at several different rodeos throughout the year, including the well-known Fort Worth Stock Show and Rodeo. Well, and Carol, I think we have covered a wide range of cowboys and cowgirl culture, as well as given our listeners some movie recommendations and some history. So in between popping your popcorn to watch those movie recommendations or picking up one of the books we mentioned or buying tickets to the rodeo, please visit our website at www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry to pick up on episodes you may have missed and to connect with us on social media. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.